You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, winner of the Share Care Emmy Award for Social Storytelling and the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Hey, y'all, and welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie, and today I'm going to be talking with somebody that I have met throughout the years many times, usually at conferences. So particularly idea, idea world. Um, it's a, a big conference you guys are quite familiar with if you've listened to the podcast. And um, every year, like you kind of see some faces recurring, like I might be an instructor that people gravitate to for whatever reason. And there are other instructors and presenters and things like that people gravitate to. But fortunately, I have a chance throughout the years to meet this gentleman who's going to be on the show today. And we just started catching up at the, the last conference. And I found out that he is about to graduate or just graduated at the time was about to graduate from my alma mater. So let's just go into it. It's a, He's got a BS in kinesiology with a minor in gerontology, uh, master's in exercise science, and his doctorate in health science from uh, well, I usually say California University of Pennsylvania, but now it's called Penn West as it is merged with some other uh, universities in the area. He's currently lead faculty for the exercise science career education program at Moorpark College, where he teaches health education, kinesiology, and preps people for NASM, ACE, AFA, in collaboration with the fitness employees that connect business and qualified fitness professionals. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Jeff, Jeff Pryle. Hi, Jeff. How are you? <laughs> How are you, Rick? Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. I'm good. I'm living the dream, man. I appreciate it. And it's always good to see you at those conferences. But I feel like uh, when I found out you were... Um, about to go through and wrap up this program that I did, uh, I was like, oh, you're in the heat of it now. This is this is the, the last stretch. And then I found out your stretch was really not quite as hard as mine. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just go call it a different stretch. <laughs> it's a different stretch. You know, there are some stretches that That's are right. really intense and there are some stretches that are mild and gentle. <laughs> and uh, tell, tell everybody what we're talking about. So uh, just to keep uh, give you a little heads up at home, so uh, Dr. Ritchie actually completed the uh, Doctor of Health Science program uh, as, in completing his dissertation, so a research, particular research project that he had to conduct and go through the, the extensive process of going through that, whereas I chose a different path, uh, I realized that the dissertation wasn't required for uh, my doctorate, for what I was pursuing, and so therefore I chose what's termed the portfolio path which really is a culminating, a culmination, I should say, of nine different artifacts that I need to create, uh, including scholarship, research. I did have to do research, so I did some of that, of course. Uh, oh, okay. Teaching Just kidding. I'm teasing. <laughs> teaching, teaching artifacts, and then, uh, of course, leadership or uh, uh, artifacts where I do community-based work. So um, similar, not the same, and uh, there's definitely a little a little wink that goes to, uh, to your uh because it's definitely different and I, I get it. I trust me, I get it. Listen, I'm going to tease you until the end, my friend. Uh, not, not at the end of the podcast, but uh, the end of me knowing you. Uh, so, and the, the reason is like, obviously dissertation's hard and I'm not taking anything away from the project that you did. I just like to tease you. Uh, with that being said, one of the things that you studied in your, your project, so as you came to the end and you were 
you're starting to really develop and focus. You had been working with youth, and I think that you do some strength and conditioning coaches for some local youth, maybe high schools in the area. So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you live, and some things we need to know about you as we start to get into what your course of study was, which was youth with ADHD. Yeah, thanks. Well, the a little bit about me. So I'm I'm married with three boys, and uh, I live in Irvine, California, which is in Southern California in uh, Orange County. And I am a lead faculty, as you mentioned, of uh, Moore Park College, and I specifically focus on kinesiology, health education. And uh, in addition to that, I am also a certified strength coach. I have my NSM CES, PES. Uh, I'm a group fitness instructor, as well as, of course, a certified personal trainer. And strength and conditioning was always something really exciting for me. I always liked sports, and I was an athlete growing up. And, uh, of course, once that kind of passed me by on the competitive level, I want to still use my passion for exercise and lifting weights to be able to help others in improving performance. Well, it was always interesting to me because once I had my first son, who is now almost 17, I really loved helping them in recreation coaching, things of that sort. But I also realized that when I was start off as an assistant, there was really no movement planning. There was no intent to help people move better. And then also I found that a lot of the practices were very linear. We work on X, then we work on Y, then we work on Z. And there's really nothing like where we kind of add some variability. And really my whole thing is if I can help a, an athlete become smarter, help them become better at problem solving, work more on the cognitive side, then I can get the best of both worlds. I can you know, create a better movement, uh, a, a, a movement musician, if you will, as well as, of course, a person who's going to understand how these movements apply to their sport. And that really launched into my love for working with youth. And I'm talking from kindergarten up to uh, college. And uh, I still work with clients now, uh, very part-time, definitely just to keep my skills sharp. And then, as you mentioned, I am um, I was uh, hired as a, uh, a strength coach, very part-time again, more of like a volunteer thing, really, um, with Irvine High School, which is right down the street from me. And I work with the water polo program, boys and girls. And uh, it's really interesting because you have, these are student athletes, and we have people with different backgrounds of exercise, sports experience, and even just being in a weight room type of experience. So applying my my love for that to the young folks to me is exciting. And I like seeing the changes, not just the physical ones, but also the the cognitive ones that happen with that. I want to dig into the education a little bit, man, because you um, was there a break? So you did uh, you did your your four-year degree, and then you did a master's, and then you went into your doctorate. Do you have any breaks in between there, or did you just go all the way through? Yeah, so the gray hair should tell you that I took some breaks. Uh, I actually <laughs> finished my undergrad uh, a couple years before I got married, uh, before I even met my wife, and then I took time off. It was my time to go and work. I actually used to be a corporate uh, fitness educator for 24-Hour Fitness, traveling all over the country, teaching certification classes, recertification classes, continuing education, really kind of understanding the business more and realizing that, interestingly, I didn't know that I wanted to do fitness as a career. That was not even on my radar. It was uh, really strength conditioning. I wanted to work at a university working with athletes primarily. And then uh, when my about we were then pregnant with my oldest son and then I finished my master's through at that time was Cal U of Pennsylvania finished my master's in exercise science. So that was a 
it was about eight years before I had, I had done that. Uh, and then uh, after that, uh, again, same thing. I'm teaching at the college. I'm working full time. I'm running my own gym. I have my own gym out in North Corona where I worked with um, uh, soccer players, baseball players, uh, actually some professional volleyball players. Now they're pros. And, uh, and so then, but still teaching at the college. And then I decided, you know what, I think it's time for me to go ahead and, and sort of upgrade my knowledge, upgrade my ability to help my students. And that's when I decided uh, just two years ago to go ahead and pursue the uh, doctor of health program, doctor of health science program. So there are definitely some breaks in between. And I, I found that to be incredibly valuable because I was able to bring real world experience into my assignments, into the, um, you know, to the, the peer interactions. And uh, I thought that was actually a pretty useful thing. I, I agree with that. I, after every time I finished school, it was the last time I'd go to school. And that that was my my four year degree. That then was my master's. Then I went back to school to massage therapy. And and I and I can tell you for a fact, I was like, I will I have zero desire to to go anywhere beyond uh, where I did. And of course, when I told my wife, I was like, hey, I think I want to look at this program for my doctorate. She was like, here we go again. <laughs> right. So, um, but, but yeah, there was time in between. And I think that the time in between did me well to prepare and work and focus on training, focus on my business, focus on what I do and develop as a professional before I really got into the work that I was doing as academic. And that that that's helpful for me because I feel like a lot of times there are professors out there that are steeped in academia and 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 they used to maybe lift and focus on lifting 20 years ago when they were in college, 30 years ago, and they just haven't done it. And so they're not in the middle of it. They are not uh, if they're not doing research and they're not staying active and they're not doing the lifting themselves, then I feel like they lose a step and you can still look at the research, but I think it's vital to be able to take that research and the application to better understand how people are applying concepts. And honestly, the, the stuff that hasn't been researched yet, there are so many different types of training protocols that are out there that is just waiting to bubble to the surface for researchers to look at and go, let's, let's test that one. Let's test that one. Now, with that being said, what is, uh, you, you did your focus on uh, youth with ADHD. And I think this is important because not too long ago, not too recently, I had a gentleman on the show by the name of Peter Shankman. And Peter Shankman's got a podcast called Faster Than Normal. Uh, he's got a book called Faster Than Normal, and it's all about people with the ADHD brain. And if you ever, if you follow Peter, if you watched any of his stuff, listened to any of his talks, and he's a keynote speaker uh, all across the world, and a delightful guy, but uh, I always said that I listen to my podcast generally on two times speed, and I'd have to put it on half speed just to understand what he was saying. So there's a, there, there are people that are faster than normal. And what I love about what he teaches and talks about and focuses on is that it's not necessarily, well, first of all, for him, it's not a bad thing at all with, with him and many people in 
uh, very, very successful uh, executive positions, they have neurodivergent brains. And on his podcast, he has those people come onto his show, people with neurodivergence, whether uh, it's uh, ADHD or many of the other um, things that people have that are generally of concern when you're young and your parents are very concerned about it on your behalf that end up working out in your favor if you can learn to harness it and ride it in the right direction. Now, with that being said, there is a correlation with physical activity and that is something that you started to look at and you started to study. So I'm curious why that was something you started to dig into. And then I want you to go right into like your course of study and what you found. Uh, wonderful question. So the real, the real impetus behind my pursuit of this particular research focus was my son. Um, my wife and I adopted a boy uh, about now going on to over 12 years ago, almost 13 years ago. And it was absolutely uh, surprising, I will just say, because he was born with a heart defect. He was born premature, and he was born to, unfortunately, a birth mother who was addicted to methamphetamine. So he had a number of things going against him, and um, we were basically expected expecting that uh, low, low, low cerebral blood flow be, because of his um, heart heart uh, malformation. His um, the addiction to methamphetamine. He was born addicted to meth. And so that, of course, causes some you know, ch changes in the in the brain and the addiction part of it that comes with that, of course. And we really didn't know what to expect, but we kind of were ahead of the game as far as that. And so, you know, I have three boys, um, you know, even my two biological kids, they're very different in so many ways. And it has been a, a quite a haul. And I mean, he's a joy. He's amazing. And he's he's blessed us more than we blessed him, I'm sure. But uh you know, one of the things that I, that was really, I think, inspiring to me was that we tried a lot of different treatments. We tried dietary changes. We tried um, cognitive behavior therapy, and we tried um, we tried uh, CBD. I mean, we tried all these different things, uh, and of course, you know, reducing screen, uh, you know, controlling the bedtime. It was just really not too much was really working. We finally ended up having to go into into medication and he's using uh, still uses to this day stimulant based medication and uh ultimately one of the things that i was initially curious about was does this have an, a, the same effect does exercise have the same effect as like stimulant based medications the and because because if i can get my kid off of the meds i want to do that uh because there are other side effects that will come along with it well uh, then, of course, as things started to change, I started to dig deeper into the research, as you can you can definitely um, uh, relate. Uh, you just start digging deeper and then digging deeper, and then more and more research comes out, and you're looking at this saying, well, as of right now, the medication seems to be pretty good, especially specifically um, stimulant-based. So maybe rather than looking at trying to compete with medication as far as my research focus, maybe I will look at exercise as more of an augmentation to either no one using medication, so they're okay. just not getting treated at all. Or if they are on medication, do their symptoms improve with exercise being added as a as a, an additional treatment, complementary treatment? Got you. So the the work that you did it was it was children that were on medication, 
And then did you see a different, were there like control groups with medication, no physical activity, medication with physical activity? Yeah. So it ran the gamut. It ran the gamut. Okay. I, uh, it's probably, if I was going to say there, and, and I, I wrote this in a lot of my um, sort of where, where are the gaps and the limitations in the research, whenever I draw conclusions about this and things that can be approved upon in the body of evidence was so many studies had so many different things they were comparing. It's really hard to then kind of rein it all in and then adopt a particular causation, right? It's, it's you can definitely draw some correlations. And so um, there were definitely studies that compared those who were on stimulant-based medication and those who were not. Uh, some kids who um, were diagnosed versus some, some who were not. Uh, typically developing kids, so kids had no symptomology, nothing referencing ADHD. How did they respond compared to those with ADHD diagnoses? And then, of course, even then within the diagnosis um, sort of platform, there are so many different tools that can be used to diagnose ADHD. So if, if you use different tools as a measurement technique, then you look at a different study that uses other tools, or maybe that particular group of kids, they're, don't, they're not as ADHD severe, if you will, compared to these others, simply because they use different instruments to evaluate intensity or severity of ADHD. That makes it really hard. But here's what I will say, that uh, even when we compare those studies that had stimulant-based uh, treatments and then with stimulant-based plus exercise, the plus exercise performed better. Um, and then we saw some that, that would be stimulant-based, no, no treatment other than exercise. And the stimulant-based ones, they improved in many aspects from emotional regulation to attention and focus, uh, reducing hyperactivity, impulsivity. Uh, what's called a task switching or being able to switch tasks, attention switching. They, they improved, of course, the medication improved, but those in the exercise group also improved. Now, the, the degree or the magnitude to which they improved wasn't as large, but one of the takeaways for me was that I reviewed a lot of the, the data that showed that a lot of, especially lower income families, maybe don't pursue treatment for whatever reason. And so if they don't pursue treatment from a medication standpoint, and even those who have, let's say, um, like a, a medical condition, like we were concerned about my son's heart condition and the use of medication, especially a stimulant, maybe they don't qualify for a, a medication. And maybe that there has to be an alternative treatment path, like cognitive behavior therapy or exercise. And so it was really encouraging to see in a lot of the, the evidence shows that there are improvements, in fact, with exercise alone as the addition of treatment. Oh, that's fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. Uh, this is the NASM CPT podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie, and we have Dr. Jeff Kryle with us today who has recently earned that title, doctor. So again, congratulations on that and your recent graduation from the program at Penn West. Uh, and he's been doing work on youth with ADHD and bless you for adopting. I think that that's so amazing and noble and uh, it's a big undertaking. And so uh, shout out to you for that. And uh, ended up being, I guess, the, the impetus that drove you into the direction for your research, which I think is very cool. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to the 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 research that you've been looking at, I think one of the concerns, and you mentioned it, is that there are sometimes different criteria for um, 
um, evaluations for ADHD. And, and I'm curious, are these all, are they self-evaluation or is this evaluation that a, uh, a licensed therapist kind of asks questions about and then uses maybe a Likert scale one to five and fills in on their behalf or is it self, uh, self-administered? That is another aspect of the, the, the breadth of the different tools that were used. And uh, I really tried to focus my, my, uh, my analyses on studies that used a variety of tools. Uh, if you lean too hard on like self-evaluation, first of all, especially with considering the population, right, with young kids, a self-evaluation may not be all that great. And to be honest with you, if you lean right. too hard, even with adults, a self-evaluation, they, they might change their response according to how they think they should have responded to treatment uh, or, or how they feel they should behave if we're talking about behavioral uh, evaluation. So the a lot of the, the studies that I used had a, really a good mix of, of surveys, self-reflection, parental reports. Um, there is what's called the, the Connors uh, Behavior Survey. And so that checklist uses a teacher one as well as a parental one. So you can see what they're like at home under those circumstances versus in the academic setting in those circumstances. And then there are definitely some that had self-evaluations, but then also actual like, you know, quant- quant- quantitative tools. We're talking about the Tower of London test, um, these different um, task switching tasks, uh, tests, and there are a, lot, a little um, you know, focus and reaction time tests. And so we, I, got, got to get, I got an opportunity to see a mix of different types of evaluation tools. And that to me was really what I was looking for because I wanted to make sure I didn't put all the eggs in one basket and, and then yeah. come up with this conclusion that, yeah, it seems to work, but if that person doesn't respond the right way, it's going to change it. Uh, in addition to that, there were also uh, not as many, but definitely there were some quality um, qualitative studies as well, where there was more of like interviewing, uh, like one-on-one interviewing, a small group kind of feedback back and forth about almost like a like think of like a parent-teacher conference. Think of it mm-hmm. like that, you know, looking at like are you noticing just general things that you can't necessarily put a, like a number to like a Likert scale, like you said, but we can definitely notice behavioral changes, things like that. So the, the, there was a lot of quantitative stuff and then used from a lot of different measurement tools, which I thought was pretty valuable to kind of come up with a more focused answer as to whether this is going to provide a benefit. Got you on any of the research that you came across, was there anything where it was, um, um, like like thrown off, like skewed to some large degree, either like this exercise really helped these kids in this study or it didn't actually do much for these. And when you get that, do you go, mm, you're really throwing off my data. I'm going to have to not include this in my study. <laughs> well, as as you know, when you're when you're vetting the, the evidence doing what's called a broad scan, you're reviewing, looking for like the levels of evidence, trying to get it as 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 gold standard as you can get. Right. You're talking a like a, a meta analysis, systematic review of nothing but controlled, uh, randomized controlled trials. Like that is the, yeah, the yeah. trying to find. And so I definitely found uh, some studies. I was like, Ugh, um, you didn't even test them before. Like you just tested them after what? Said, what? it improved. Yes. Um, I had some that they, they, they didn't use a, an established validated testing protocol. They just went, we tried them on this and we saw changes. I'm like, yeah, but 
I don't know that that test even works for what you're trying to accomplish, right? Is it reliable? Is it valid? So uh, I definitely, I had to read through those, of course, in order to kind of filter through and find the stuff that was more worthwhile. But um, in, in, as far as the, the outcomes not being all that great, one of the things that was quite interesting, and of course you have different influences, right? You're talking about uh, the frequency, how many days per week. This is perfect for our program design for, for the NSM podcast frequency. Uh, there was from one time a week to five times a week uh, in, in, across different studies. We talked about different intensities, and that was another difficult thing too because you, it was difficult to say moderate intensity because moderate was defined at a, a different percent of maximum heart rate in one study as it was compared to another. So I had to look at the percentages, and in some cases they would say moderate intensity, but they never actually evaluated heart rate. So there was really – it was sometimes they would use like – perceived exertion but again that could be skewed because not everybody's good at kind of identifying how hard they're working necessarily so that was really difficult intensity was probably the hardest one for me to be able to align sort of those research stars if you will to ensure that i was actually comparing apples to apples then of course duration there were some particular studies that were 10 minutes long and you know 10 minute sessions and others that were 60 minute sessions and then the, I think yeah, the most yeah. most exciting one and most compelling to me was the was the mode was the type, and so I had some that were swimming, which sounds good. Except how many kids do we know in this country who don't even know how to swim? So if they don't know how to swim, they couldn't then introduce a particular treatment that's going to be of any benefit because they're going to drown, right? So so then so even though swimming aerobic exercise specifically the mode of swimming seemed to have a lot of benefit for a number of different um, outcomes related to attention and focus. And then you had some that were riding a bike, walking on treadmill. Uh, that's all fine. They, those those seem to have some some good outcomes. Again, it depended uh, it seemed to be that um, chronic programming, so programming over several weeks, seemed to have much more of a sustained effect than just one single bout, like an acute session. We're just going to try it this one time and see what happens. Uh, and by the way, the chronic ones even showed that there was some uh, delayed benefit as well. So it was, there was actually a sustained benefit on attention for um, for a, a couple of hours following, and and even a couple of days in some cases. But uh, the interesting thing was then you started getting into more, I started focusing more on type. And as, as I'm realizing, well, the frequency intensities and time, those are kind of consistent, but the type may be a, a unique attribute that may offer a, a significant difference. And I started finding stuff related to HIT programming, high intensity interval training. I started finding things related to like exercise gaming. So it was like almost like a dance dance revolution kind of thing where you're running around doing things or uh, like a, a Wii Fit perhaps, you know, they, I'm not specifically talking about this is what they use, but trying to give it more of like the, a, the, the average person can understand what, what they're talking about. And so uh, in light of that, uh, they also, I started seeing more and more studies when I focus more on type, more related to martial arts, more related to uh, coordination based training, more complexity. So not just we're going to do sit-ups and push-ups, but now we're talking about, you know, practicing Taekwondo skills. We're talking about now working on things that require multiple task attention. So bouncing a ball and then moving laterally. I'm just giving an example. Or like, for example, we talk about in our speed, agility, and quickness chapters in NASM courses, we're talking about cone drills, speed ladder work. And when we start adding complexity, that then starts to train 
the ability of the prefrontal cortex to be better at planning and organizing. I can attend better. And then, you know, obviously, you know, the certain structures of the brain, like the basal ganglia that are in charge of processing information, that, that processing sort of improvement can, can actually start improving other aspects of the brain too, the, the, the RAS or the reticular activating system, which actually, once it gets better at filtering information, like this is necessary, this isn't as necessary, let's, let's go and coordinate around this, that actually can improve attention and impulsivity and hyperactivity, which are the primary symptoms of those with ADHD. So uh, I found that the type was actually much more critical in my research than the frequency and the like the time i'd say type and intensity were probably the, the two biggest factors so, so regarding, regarding type did you come across any of the types where because you mentioned cardio you mentioned high intensity and then skill-based things like taekwondo and in sporting style events but you mentioned that you were interested in strength and conditioning not just conditioning so um how, what were the effects like when it came to resistance training did would did they differentiate this is a resistance training protocol this is a cardio and just kind of identify what worked or did not work with those interventions yeah that's that's a really really good point because i i believe there there were very few studies that even identified true what we would consider like resistance training and i'm i'm wondering if although it was never actually mentioned here's why we didn't choose it uh, I think when it comes to something like resistance training, you are always going to be at the mercy of the researcher's ability to deliver an appropriate resistance training program as far as cueing posture and and uh, form, range of motion, the proper plane of motion, whatever. It's going to be a safety thing. And then also you're talking about kids. You're talking about from, I mean, the studies I reviewed were from five years old up to 17, 18 years old. And so you're not going to probably have a, a, a novice, a neophyte six-year-old kid, you know, doing barbell squats or anything like that. But one of the things that they did do was it was mainly focused on body weight, body weight resistance training. And so it would be like lunges and jumping jacks, more calisthenic based stuff. Um, but uh, what I actually do, if I can kind of apply this into how I do my strength conditioning with, with my youth, is I actually take time to do sort of the traditional here's how you do this stuff and then we start adding in complexity now I start, i'll do add like a metronome for example where they have to follow the count of the metronome while they're doing a lift and they have to speed up or slow down according to what they're listening to um, i will have them attend to something on the wall for example we have a fitness clock they have to attend to the wall while they're engaging in an activity and they have to then vocalize what they're seeing on the clock while in doing proper form at the right tempo, all that kind of stuff. So I try to, because like you said, the strength part of what I do, I try to add the strength part. And then as they earn it, of course, they have to earn the progressions. As they earn it, I start adding in complexity, layers of complexity. And that complexity could also be um, they have to uh, do it at the same pace as a partner. And the partner could then change the pace. I'm like, like mirroring drills, like we've done in SAQ type formats. And then I will have them add layers of complexity related to, uh, they have to do something in one direction and then have to do it in a different direction. And then when they get good at that, I then tell them they have to do different directions and can never duplicate a direction sequentially. So if they're gonna do something in the sagittal plane, then they can go frontal plane, 
but they can't go sagittal again. They have to do something else and then rotate back. So we'll do like a squat matrix or a lunge matrix or a push-up matrix, or even um, even having them do a defensive pattern where they have to pattern forward, pattern backwards, sideways, and they can never repeat. And uh, those kinds of things, I'm trying to take the, the cognitive element of conditioning and blend it into the stuff that they may already know. And, and I, I'm, I'm always curious too, uh, because just like with adults and having trained adults, people come in with their own, their own biases, their own ideas of what, of what they should be doing. So oftentimes I will start off with a little more of the traditional stuff and then start throwing a little bit of the flair, if you will, to allow them, they, they, now they trust me, they, perhaps they trust the process, they trust what it is I know, and now I can be a little bit more liberal in how I insert those things into the programming to continue to maintain the buy-in from those kids. Oh, very good. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is the NASM CPT podcast and the host Rick Ritchie. And I've got guest Dr. Jeff Kryle with us today talking about youth and ADHD. And I am just curious now as we start to wrap this up as uh, I know you said it's all over the board, things that you're looking at. What were what were the outcomes? I mean, what do you really see? Do you think that there are strong benefits that of any particular type of exercise intervention that is beneficial for youth that have ADHD? Yeah, so I, I would say, as I kind of alluded to before, I would say that it, I definitely would, for practitioners out there, I would lean more towards the intensity and I'd lean more towards the type. So the intensity, try to get around where they are relatively breathless, if you will, and uh, try to focus more on getting them to, to be able to sustain that intermittently. And then uh, I would then say, make sure that they are doing things that are much more complex in nature. So hey, if you want to throw in a bicep curl, that's cool. But then throw in a bicep curl with a lunge matrix, or then go ahead and have them do it maybe at a specific cadence where you change the cadence throughout, or maybe they have to mirror and they have to match someone else. The, the, the cognitive element, uh, and I'm really thankful to my advisory panel because after they started seeing the first year of my research and the outcomes, they saw that there were some some interesting elements that were almost missing uh, related to the cognitive side. And they encouraged me to dig deeper into the cognitive side, cognitive side. And I'm so glad I did because that really exposed a lot more of the different types, which for me, from a pragmatic standpoint, I mean, right now, I, you know, I teach at a college and we have basically anything we'd ever want in the weight room, right? We have an amazing facility. And then now I'm at a high school where the facility is not nearly as robust. I have to be more creative. I can't lean on the machines or the tubing or medicine balls. I have to then insert my experience with making things more complex. And of course, I can do that without equipment. I can do that just by planning ahead, right? My preparation. So if, if I was to offer any sort of guide, it would be make sure that you are intentional about the intensity of the activity. And of course, it has to be relative to the individual, right? So a person who's deconditioned, their, their 80% is going to look different than a person who's conditioned, right? It may be jumping jacks, but you know the one who's deconditioned won't be doing nearly as many to hit that 80%. And then also the complexity of it. So you can add in you know, different types of jumping jacks and they can do that. I actually do this funny thing because I think sometimes high school athletes take themselves a little bit too seriously especially at the higher levels so just to kind of break the ice i'll have them do jumping jacks around the room i call them nomadic jumping jacks 
and they are just moving around like crazy as they're doing jumping jacks and it focuses them on uh, on what they're doing but also getting the intensity up as well gotcha i cannot stop thinking about uh dr john rady's book spark and i know you're familiar with his book spark and uh, it really is about uh, exercise and the brain and exercises effects on the brain. And he goes through a lot of things, whether it's anxiety, depression, ADHD, um, kind of hits on a lot of things. And for me, that book changed everything when it came to exercise because exercise was always good for the body. Exercise is good for the heart. Exercise is good. We kind of compartmentalize the body. And what he really did is say exercise is good for the brain too. And here are all the benefits that exercise has on the brain and on your outcomes and how you interact in the world. And that I was at that point, I was like, if there's, I feel like there's anything going on in your body and it, no matter what it is, fitness is going to benefit you in some way. Physical fitness is going to benefit. And we see this so many times over and over again, and becoming more and more researched too as we go on. And ADHD just seems to be one of those things that are researched, probably not as much um, as some of the other ones, but ADHD is also most prevalent in youth and therefore ADHD in youth is probably more researched than any other thing. Yeah, there is, there is a lot of evidence in adults, but I think you made a really great point leading into the beginning of this, that it seems that these neurodivergent, uh, situations tend to resolve themselves or at least mitigate some of those uh, those symptoms that maybe uh, with kids are much more magnified social situations in school where they're forced to be in certain in certain settings, um, you know, emotional control. They're also going through a very difficult time as children learning um, how to be responsible citizens, how to interact with others. So it's really magnified in that population. And and uh, interestingly, there is a lot of research in in youth. But I still don't think there's enough because I think that we're still still too spread out and really haven't kind of gathered it all together and been a little more. Con we need to be more consistent in how we measure this stuff. And, um, you know, it's, it's always going to be difficult, though, because kids may not be nearly as compliant as adult subjects could be as well. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Jeff, I want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be here with us on the NASM CPT podcast. Uh, for people who are interested in maybe looking at some of the work that you've done or asking you questions about this, want to reach out to you, what are some of the best ways that they can do that? Sure. So they can email me at my, uh, at my work email. It is J-K-R-E-I-L at V cccd.edu. And uh, of course, I do have a, uh, a, uh, a Wix uh, website that has some of my portfolio information, some of the studies that I've, that I've uh, reviewed. And of course, I have, everything is cited. I have references for everything. And uh, uh, of course, as time goes on, there's going to be more information that comes out. So if they have any questions, uh, please have them just email me, go ahead and reach out. And I'm happy to share the link to my portfolio. And you can review some of the work that I did uh, in, in all the different aspects, including the community events and teaching uh, opportunities I took, took part in. 
Fantastic. Jeff, thank you so much for being here. I greatly appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. Uh, it, like, subscribe, share with your fitness friends and family. And if you don't mind, also leave a review, please, on whatever platform you're listening to. It really does help our show get exposure, not just when there are likes and subscribes, but also those reviews. So that's very helpful and greatly appreciated. So please do that. And if you've got questions for me, feel free to reach out. You can hit me up on Instagram at dr.rickritchie or email me rick.ritchie at nasm.org. Y'all keep inspiring people to fitness. Thanks for listening. This has been the NASM CPT Podcast.